Hello, and welcome to the interview at IU. Our guest today is Kimberly Dozier. Kimberly Dozier is a CNN Global Affairs Analyst, as well as a Time Magazine contributor. As 17 years as an award-winning CBS News foreign and national security correspondent, Dozier has covered intelligence and counterterrorism in the Middle East and throughout the world. She has worked for the Associated Press, covered national security for the Daily Beast, as she also served as Lyndon Bureau Chief for CBS Radio News and executive editor of the intelligence-focused media startup The Cipher Brief. Dozier held the 2014 to 2015 General Omar Bradley Chair at the U.S. Army War College, Penn State Law, and Dickinson College, the first journalist and the first woman in that post, as she shared lessons of how media coverage shapes national security policy. Past foreign postings include Cabal, Baghdad, Jerusalem, Islamabad, London, and Cairo, covering stories including the post-9-11 U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the hunt for terrorist Osama bin Laden at Tora Bora, Iraq under the reign of Saddam Hussein, as well as the U.S. invasion that followed consequently. She has also covered the Kosovo refugee exodus, the first election of Russian President Vladimir Putin, as well as violence and peacemaking in Northern Ireland, as well as the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. She has interviewed newsmakers as varied as U.S. Army Generals Stanley McChrystal, David Petros, and H.R. McMaster, as well as Osama bin Laden Raid Commander Navy SEAL Admiral Bill McRaven. As she's also interviewed Palestinian President Yasser Arafat, Pakistani President General Pervez Musharraf as well as Afghan presidential candidate Azraf Ghani. Kimberly Ozier has a wide-ranging career. She is most well-known, perhaps, for surviving in a car bombing in Baghdad in 2005 that tragically killed the entirety of her camera crew. Dozier has since gone back to, to Baghdad for the Associated Press after leaving CBS News, as she has also contributed to Rolling Stone magazine. When you uh, you centered your speech on the attentions of Americans shifting along with those of the Biden administration. So I wanted to ask about that. First of all, do you believe the Afghanistan pullout, like, why do you believe it was executed the way it was? And how do you believe that Washington, D.C. should have should be responding differently given the current situation? OK, those are a couple of questions there. Um, first of all, it's good to be here and talk to you guys. Uh, the speech was on uh, why is Washington turning away from the Middle East? But I, I loosely included um, Afghanistan in that, even though if you um, if you look at like the State Department's definition of what's the Middle East and, you know, the Pentagon's definition of, of the Middle East, it doesn't really go that far. But um, for for a common audience, um, we all kind of think of it in the same, you know, we think of the uh, Islamic world uh, mostly as, quote unquote, synonymous with the Middle East, even though um, just as an aside, uh Indonesia is the most populous Muslim nation on earth, and it is most definitely not in the Middle East. Anyway, so uh, as a foreign correspondent for um, many decades, I remember being in the Middle East, um, places like um, Palestinian territories or Egypt or Iraq, and hearing from locals two complaints, either Washington is ignoring us or Washington is imperially interfering with our affairs. Um, so there was a this push-pull of, you know, why aren't you giving us the help we need and paying attention to how important the problems are here to the United States? And the other side of it, um, your help is corrosive and corrupting and get out of our backyard. Um, and then you could set that next to the feelings of people, whether they're inside Washington, D.C. or institutions of higher learning, um, like where you are in Indiana, uh, saying, you know, I really care about this part of the world, um, either because of my studies or I've got family there or a combination thereof. And why doesn't 
it feel like the White House is paying attention. So I drew on my experiences as a foreign correspondent covering the Palestinian peace process and also covering the Afghan war and the Iraq war, both from the beginning to the end. Um, and I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, the United States is a vast country. And if you are governing it, um, if you want to get reelected, you've got to pay attention to the issues that affect people's daily lives. Usually those are your pocketbook issues. Like, you know, can I um, get what I need from the grocery store um, to feed my kids every week? Can I fill my tank uh, of, with gas so that I can get to work? Do I have anything left over? The issues like what's going on in the Palestinian territories and the injustices that Palestinians feel they're suffering at the hand of the Israelis or Afghan forces or officials who worked closely with the United States and risked their lives working with the US and NATO um, to build a country more in the US image. Well, that doesn't really affect your daily life um, back here in the United States, unless there's a terrorist component. Uh, there was a resurgence of interest in um, ISIS, uh, sorry, in Iraq, when the so-called Islamic State, aka ISIS, um, grew in size and started making threats um, and followed them up with some attacks inside the United States and much more deadly attacks inside Europe. So, um, that's the way that the attention meter goes. We are human in a very real sense in that, oh, what, 10,000 years ago when we were living in small tribal units and you needed the safety of the tribe in the cave, your brain was trained to scan for threats thousands of times a second, not just a minute, but a second. So you scan for the th threats that are gonna threaten your existence. And you know what? In the sort of hierarchy of needs, news coverage follows that and international interests follow that and government policies follow that. All that aside, um, I did mention, I caveated this with, hey, there are groups of people within the State Department, within the intelligence services, within the Pentagon, who continue to work these issues, even when it looks like no one's paying attention to them. So, um, you know, reporters might not be writing about it unless there's a, a flash of violence, but I tried to reassure the audience that there, if you care about the Middle East, Afghanistan, et cetera, there are places where you can go to keep working on these issues for the next time that violence does flare up and the attention swings there. Right. And that's such a key component is that, is that yes, these issues are always being worked on, but in terms of like the progress and uh, I want to follow up on that before uh, we get to Caleb uh, and uh, his questions. Um, how do you think the media sort of, not only plays a role in public perceptions, but in foreign policy, particularly with the example of like the Afghanistan crisis or what's been going on in, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and I and I didn't mean to dodge your Afghanistan question. Um, sure, it's fine. So the media follows that, you know, what what is a threat to you interest? It, it, at its best, it can raise to your attention the plight of injustice being done to someone in a part of the world that might be at the receiving end of U.S. foreign policy. And maybe either that foreign policy is supporting a government that is com committing unjust acts or inadvertently, um, you know, being charitable, uh, supporting perhaps a military, um, local military forces that are committing human rights violations, which is, by the way, a, a violation of U.S. law. Um, so right now, the that attention of U.S. reporters, especially, but reporters in the you know quote unquote West, um, uh, the global North, vice the global South, um, are focused on Ukraine is because, well, 
country with nuclear weapons has invaded another country with um, claims to its, you know, ignoring borders, making claims um, that uh, ignore its sovereignty, its sovereignty that's recognized by the United Nations and um, most of the members of the United Nations. And it's also threatened the use of nuclear weapons against that nation or anyone that tries to um, help in the defense of that nation. So that becomes that existential threat, i.e. a threat to your existence that your interests should follow and the U.S. media is trying to educate you about why it matters, um, even though it's it's darn hard. Um, the longer this war goes on, it's going to be hard to find new ways to tell uh, nightmare stories. Um, but that so so in terms of Afghanistan for a very long period of time, First of all, it was the place where the terrorists that claimed responsibility for the attacks of 9-11 on New York and Washington um, had plotted and then had um, had been able to train forces and then continue their operations. And that's why the U.S., backed by other NATO countries, did the invasion um, and, and hunted them down and toppled the Taliban government. But then that mission morphed and arguably... Um, over each year, each decade of the war, you know, it, it morphed again and again and again. And it became, oh, look how Afghanistan is the poorest country on earth. Look how the women are treated. Oh, we want to remake this country in our own image, which is a very noble goal. But did we ever have the resources? So detractors of the war said, um, and I, I, Heard them over and over within the U.S. military, within the U.S. intelligence world, um, within the U.S. government over the years. This is a waste of money. We keep thinking we can remake a country. The country's vast. Um, we tried. The country is riven with corruption. That's part of the, the the system of making bribes at each step of the process becomes essentially a fee. That's that's part of the way the country does business. We can't change it. So versus um, other people, especially who lost um, battle buddies, lost Afghan allies in this process, who said, you know, we've already put so much in, we, we can't just walk away. Um, president Biden, when he was vice president, had made that argument and lost. And President Obama at the time had um, agreed on a surge of forces and backed the let's try to fix this um, strategy. Let's keep investing in it. There was an argument towards the end uh, among the military where they're like, look, we, we don't want to keep throwing good money after bad, but we don't want to totally give up on the place. We want it to become like a Kosovo. Did you realize that there are still thousands of U.S. forces in Kosovo and the middle of Europe. Most Americans don't. What they did with that one is, as that dropped out of the headlines, the U.S. also cycled down the number of forces there until it was a very small number of forces. And of course, the difference between these forces in Afghanistan and Afghanistan is that they were rarely ever under fire. Um, but it was able to keep that presence there and that small U.S. military presence was a guarantee that um, Serbia wouldn't invade Kosovo. So the argument was being made by the folks in the military. They didn't want to leave thousands of forces. They wanted to leave roughly 1,000 U.S. forces. And there were other NATO countries that were also going to contribute. Um, but Biden made another decision. I would argue that from what I've heard um, from overseas diplomats and spending time in India on a fellowship last year, first time I'd ever been there, what I heard time and again was, America is a fair weather ally. Look what you did to your friends, you'll walk away. All that said, that is a sad story that might end up blowing up in our faces, but it hasn't yet, in the meantime, Russia invaded Ukraine. That's the most immediate threat. And that is where the news media's attention focused, even as people like me still ache for the people that we knew and worked with back in Afghanistan who were stuck in the middle of an ongoing nightmare. Who are still stuck there sometimes. sometimes. Uh, 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of people stuck in, in a country that is, um, it feels like with each passing day, reverting back to a, a very strict um, and firebrand era of Taliban rule. Where why are we, sorry, why are we getting the map? Sorry? Why, sorry, why aren't we getting the map? Uh, part of it, I think, is the Biden administration's, um, this is my analysis, that the Biden administration does, um, well, they say that, hey, we got 100,000 out, and uh, what they'll, they won't tell you publicly, but will say privately, is uh, where do you stop? There are tens of thousands of Afghans who uh, worked with the United States. If we got them all out and got them to the U.S., the um, Republicans would accuse us of a refugee influx that's unsustainable, and that could lose us the next election. So it does become that cold. Uh, all that said, uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, I saw on his schedule this week was a, a, a scheduled meeting with um, U.S. volunteer groups who are still trying to get Afghans who work with the U.S. out of the country. So they um, the programs still exist to get them out, but finding practical ways to do it um, is nearly impossible. Uh, I've even uh, been involved with some volunteer groups where they spent tens of thousands of dollars to get Afghans to countries like Pakistan. But the, with the Pakistani visa process, you can only stay for six months and then you have to reapply to stay again. And um, the Pakistanis have their own, uh, they already have at least a million Afghan refugees from before this crisis happened. So um, they send people back and then you've spent all those tens of thousands of dollars and you've gotten nowhere and the Afghans you were trying to help are back in the frying pan. Yeah. Well, and thanks. Got, uh, good answer. Awesome answers. Pardon? Caleb, you, uh, you have something? Caleb, over to you. I have been talking and talking. No, it's totally okay. I thought that was fascinating. Um, I guess shifting the focus a little bit, because we talked about kind of the present now shifting more to the past um i know that you were heavily involved with um reporting in iraq and were even involved um in some conflict a uh car bombing which i know helped to influence a book that you wrote i believe henry has it don't you henry yeah it's holding it up um but breathing in the fire um Breathing yeah, the fire, sorry. Fire. Um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about that? Just a little bit about that experience? I know that's kind of a general question, but. Sure. So back in, um, during the Iraq war, you know, the invasion, um, the U.S. invasion started in 2003. And I was the main, um, one of the main CBS News correspondents covering the war from 2003 until 2006. And uh, we watched the war morph from, um, well, being a, a plan to unseat a dictator to uh, an insurgency where U.S. troops that had initially been hailed as heroes uh, eventually became the antibodies that um, helped foster, you know, even as they were trying to build a new and responsible and democratic Iraqi government, um, they found themselves attacked, especially by insurgents and terrorist groups that that mixed together in a way that was sometimes hard to pick apart, um, largely backed by the Sunni minority. Um, you may or may not recall that uh, Saddam Hussein, the dictator who led um, Iraq for so many years was, um, from the Sunni Muslim minority in Iraq, whereas the majority of people were Shiite Muslim, uh, the same type of um, Islam as practiced in Iran, uh, that the majority practice in Iran and the government is, is formed around. And uh, Saddam's forces treated Shiite Muslims horrifically. There was torture, um, assassination, you know, jailing, 
uh, mass incarceration, you name it. So what started as a U.S. war to liberate Iraq became um, the U.S. stuck between those two factions. The majority of Iraqis are Shiite Muslim. And so um, for years and years, you know, what happened is you had the Sunnis kind of a mix of uh, righteous freedom fighting for their own rights um, against um, Shiite Iranian, Iraqis who were um, now taking the lion's share of positions in government. And that is how we got to the point where the U.S. was regularly under attack by um, Ba'athist forces, that's former Saddam forces, and Al-Qaeda of Iraq forces. Um, and it was just this, it became essentially a horrible civil war that the U.S. was stuck in the middle of. Uh, a war that resurged with um, ISIS in a in a sort of a different iteration and generation. Anyway, we were on a patrol on Memorial Day. Um, it was a CBS um, news crew, me and a cameraman and a sound man. And um, it had gotten so dangerous in Baghdad that basically the only way um, our bosses in London and New York wanted us to go um, outside of our hotels and our hotel by the way was in the red zone reporters weren't allowed in the u.s protected green zone that was for soldiers and diplomats etc anyway um we ended up with a u.s army foot patrol that got ambushed by a car bomb the car bomb um killed the captain the u.s army captain we were filming james alex funkhauser it killed my camera crew, uh, cameraman Paul Douglas and soundman James Brolin, killed the Iraqi translator who was working for the patrol. Um, two of the soldiers on the 12-man patrol lost legs. Uh, and I uh, ended up in the hospital for three and a half, four months. Um, I was told later that uh, I died on the operating table several times or they had to bring me back uh, something like five times that from the surgeon who had to bring me back. That was his count. I wasn't conscious for that part. Um, and I had shot into the brain, both eardrums blown out, bilateral femur fractures, first to third degree burns from my hips to my ankles, and my femoral artery was cut, which is why they kept having to bring me back. So it was a very long rehabilitation process, like so many U.S. troops have gone through. Um, and Iraqis as well, and Afghans as well. And Ukrainians are going through right now. So um, the harder part was proving that I was well um, and well enough to go back to my old job. And so that is an entirely different side of my career. Um, my recovery process led to me eventually um, switching back to print because my colleagues at CBS News were just frankly um, dealing with their own survivor's guilt and grief and just couldn't conceive of letting me go back to war zones or even um, some of the foreign stories that they saw as more riven with conflict uh, and danger than back here. Those we all know, um, any reporter anywhere where violence and conflict happens. We've seen the Black Lives Matter marches. We've seen um, uh, the January 6th riots. Uh, reporting is a dangerous job anywhere in the world. But anyway, uh, I, I decided that the best way to prove that I was healed was to go back to doing my old job, but I had to do it at a different news organization. And that's how I left CBS News to become a wires reporter for the Associated Press which is an interesting career change when you're in your 40s. Yeah, I bet. Um, so going forward, how do you think that experience, did that experience change at all how you viewed your reporting or how you did it in the future? I mean, just in terms of how you, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm sorry. Uh, um, look, it, it changed everything. Um, yeah. a, in terms of, 
um, well, it, it, it changed how people viewed me. And for a long time, I was the story, which is very uncomfortable for, I'm the kind of reporter who I always wanted to be in print. I only got into TV because it, it happened to pay more and uh, London cost a lot of money. And I also noticed that I was going into a lot of war zones as a solo radio reporter. And I was seeing um, horrible things and being in a lot of danger. TV crews had a whole team of people to get through that danger. And I just, I wanted the support of being surrounded by other people. Um, but then cameramen would have to remind me like, Kim, Kim, we got to get your face on camera. You know, you got to go do something and like be something in the middle. And I'm like, but the story's not about me. And they're like, Kim, you're a television correspondent. It's about you. So um, this process of being injured and having CBS do an hour long special where I was, you know, the majority of the interview um, process and then having everyone see me as that, uh, it li literally, uh, I think at least one tabloid um, called me bomb girl. And uh, I think the headline was bomb girl wants to go back to Baghdad or, or words akin to that. So they were also ridiculing me for wanting to go back to my old job because basically a lot of folks who do stateside reporting, um, that's what they love, that's what they do. And they don't understand your drive to be overseas. Uh, much less in the middle of a conflict zone. But my dad had been in overseas construction. So when I was uh, 12 and 13, we had been in Iran for the revolution. And so I'd, I'd gotten bit by this bug early. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a culture clash uh, in a lot of different ways that taught me a lot about, um, in retrospect, uh, as I told some of the journalism classes when I visited um, the media folks at Indiana University. I wish I had had the the, the patience to, to, to kind of wear people down and share my experience about how you can come back from injury and be okay. But um, what a lot of people, a lot of people got stuck in the, they just couldn't believe that I'd been that injured and, and could still do my old job or would want to. So uh, yeah, it. but the one thing it didn't change though was um, I, a lot of people choose to call journalists who go into conflict zones war correspondents. And it, it's this term that gets bandied about like it's some sort of badge of honor that makes you better than other reporters. Um, it also becomes a shorthand for the the relatively small number of reporters who cover conflicts who are indeed adrenaline junkies. That is a very unhealthy reaction to stress and we don't all go in that direction. I always felt the fear and then figured out, okay, you know, because feeling fear is your body protecting you. And it, it's a signal to you like, okay, if this situation is making you fearful, how can you mitigate the risks? How can you take care of your team? Um, so you don't wanna be in the foxhole reporting on a story with somebody who feels no fear. Anyway, um, so look, when we go into a conflict, we are there to speak for the people who can't escape it. And that doesn't make you special, better than other reporters. It makes you privileged because you've got a passport and a way out. They don't. So uh, that's one thing that really got hammered home in that there's this sort of cult in the media world of making people who report either stars or better than other people or, you know, some sort of um, personality uh, that is, is, that makes the people following them perhaps feel small. I never wanna do that. My job is to be as honest and real and authentic as possible so that I can be a good conduit for what I'm reporting on and also so that my ego never gets in the way of um, 
reporting uncomfortable truths. So I guess in, in, in being made the center of the story made me think also a lot about the, the last thing I'll say about this is that it, it made me think about people who are also made the center of the story and being more compassionate towards somebody that um, doesn't know how to handle all of that attention all of a sudden and never asked for it. Yeah, for sure. That's a, I mean, it's such a remarkable story, not only like, you know, what you were covering and how you, uh, and the, the tragic, you know, this tra the tragic uh, attack, you know, you and your crew. And, uh, but also, you know, remarkable how it is actually engaging with the people over there, you know, like most, most Americans, we just see, you know, these things as more or less abstractions. So like, uh, and that's something that's so uh, remarkable about what you've conveyed about your experiences reporting, not just in Afghanistan, but, you know, like even in uh, Kiev, uh, we're uh, going there last year and uh, just uh, that's such a key thing about it. I want, and, uh, but I wanted to ask, um, like, how, like, for example, with these um, authoritarian regimes, we see every once in a while there are uprisings, you know, attempts at revolution. And we see this as sort of a cycle, a historical process, you know, like, for example, in Iran recently, um, I mean, we, of course, the Arab Spring back in 2011, 2012, I believe, and you know, in uh, Egypt, with Egypt, and, you know, and then, of course, uh, Afghanistan was sort of a resurgence of sort of these theocratic policies with the Taliban taking over it that, war, you know, it's even worse than it was before. So how, uh, I guess, how best and how realistically can some of these revolutions succeed? Like people talk about with like Assad, like regime change, a lot, you know, a lot of people just sort of think, you know, you Look at us, what happened with Assad in Syria, you know, poisoning hundreds of thousands of own citizens, you know, is regime change, could regime change effectuated the right way um, be a solution? And how do, who, whose job is it to effectuate these changes and in it, any real sense? Uh, certainly not the U.S. government's. Look, the U.S. government tried time and time again to put in um, leaders who would be to topple governments and put in leaders um, who would be friendly. Now we're talking about things that were, this is 1950s uh, stuff uh, and, and earlier. Uh, the U.S. learned whether, whether it be in Iran or countries in Latin America, that this is a dangerous game because it always comes out. Uh, and then it discredits whoever you uh, put in power. And the other thing is, um, it's not, it's not, uh, well, it, it's, it's hard to figure out what people actually want out of their government. And, and I can't think of a, look what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. tried to build governments in its own image um, at the cost of, of trillions of dollars that would serve the peoples um, in each of those countries in a just way. And it's just seems that it's something you can't apply from the outside. It's got to grow organically from within. Uh, right. So, you know, as, as a reporter watching revolutions rise and fail again and again, it's really disheartening. I mean, look what happened in Syria. Uh, arguably that that whole civil war started because um, President Assad was uh, mismanaging economic aid uh, and it, it started from, again, arguably a farmer's protest and a crackdown. And I can't tell you how many U.S. officials at the time told me Assad's forces are about to crumble. Assad's about to be, it's all about to be swept away and we will see democracy take over Syria. And every time Assad was close to crumbling, um, Russia 
would, which has been a long time Assad ally, would step up support, military support, economic support, et cetera. And now you just have, you have hundreds of thousands of Syrians dead. Uh, we didn't find a way, we as uh, the United States or the West or countries that believe in sort of UN level governing norms, granted the UN is uh, riven with its own alleged corruption scandals, et cetera. But still, you know, you see where I'm trying to go with this. Right. Really thought we were doing all the right things and it just uh, blew up in our faces. Because there's so many, sorry, because there are so many different forces at play, like, you know, like, you know, in the international, uh, what, the international hmm. world. So it's just, uh, and that's what makes it so dicey on that level, you know, and I, I'm actually surprised that, mm -hmm. uh, that they would have even have been so confident. Uh, but I also, uh, well, they were looking at, they were sorry. looking at, um, the money, et cetera, flowing to Assad, and they were picking up on intelligence of the people around Assad who were plotting against him and hoping that that would spell his demise. Um, but Assad was able to, to shore up the ranks and the people who were plotting against him when Assad proved able to get new resources to keep things going, um, that that helped bolster his government. Also, there is a, there's a, the Alawite minority in Syria fears that um, the Muslim majority, uh, largely represented across many of the rebel areas, would um, uh, hunt them down and kill them. So they also back Assad. So it, it's very complicated. I guess what what I'm what if I'd step back with a thirty thousand foot view of your question, you know, do does regime change supported by foreign governments work? I would say that has largely proven not to work. It might buy, um, as one GOP official put to me, oh, but we had 20 years of you know good governance and friendly governance before it all fell apart. Well, yeah, but then the antibodies created by people finding out they, they'd been governed by a quote-unquote American stooge has made it harder in the decades since. So you're getting much more instability from doing something like that. Um, what you find a lot of folks, uh, seasoned diplomats argue for is managing a situation, being more comfortable with shades of gray instead of going for, you know, American black and white. We want to win or lose. Uh, Instead, you try to support what you consider the good forces in a country and be at peace with um, having imperfect allies or imperfect. Uh, when you use the word ally, of course, that implies that there is a treaty between your countries and theirs. Many journalists use that phrase uh, improperly, very loosely. Um, the, the term of art in U.S. government is to have um, partner nations that uh, are where you and they share many common goals and have an understanding of sorts. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a great way to summarize that whole like phenomenon in dealing with foreign policy issues and uh, essentially, you know, some of the most key global issues regarding uh, foreign policy intervention. So uh, before we uh, turn it over to Caleb, I wanted to ask you, uh, um, Regarding, like, you know, I, I uh, listened to you on a uh, uh, Brian uh, Stelter's uh, a podcast on CNN talking about about a year ago, talking about Benjamin Hall, the uh, Fox News correspondent, war correspondent who was a foreign correspondent who was a who uh, was severely injured um, in Ukraine, and his cameraman uh, was killed tragically, and. The similar yeah. the similarities of the experience and it yeah. got me thinking uh talking about like you know war court uh foreign correspondence and what you have in common and you look at the polarized american media landscape there's a lot of 
dynamics at play, but the American, everything seems so polarized in the American media landscape. And I'm wondering, um, um, how do um, independent journalists like rise above that, and not just be attached with any like certain stereotype or whatever from the networks they're working at? And how do you, how, how do you feel about that? Well, it's, it's funny. Um, first of all, when you're overseas, uh, there's a lot more cooperation between competitor organizations. Um, CBS News and ABC News in Kabul early on shared a house. They pooled resources. Um, Benji Hall from Fox was at the State Department. So I didn't know Benji very well at all. Um, when when he was injured, it was actually his agent, uh, an amazing woman um, who she basically turned reporting mode and wanted to speak to anyone who'd been through an experience like this. Um, so she had made the connection between me and um, Benji's wife and did that with a few other people so that we could all give um, give her advice. So uh, Olivia Metzger was the name of the amazing um, agent. And look, it is, it is a nightmare situation that many US troops have gone through, but not so many reporters. So um, Bob Woodruff from ABC News was hit four months to the day with a roadside bomb before my team was hit with that car bomb. And so Bob Woodruff's wife, Lee, was on the phone with my parents in at the at Landstuhl Regional Medical um, Hospital in Germany, where U.S. troops are brought, and I was also brought along with them, uh, giving them advice. So that that's how I ended up um, giving advice um, uh, to Benji's wife, et cetera. A whole bunch of us did, and we didn't say anything about it. Like when I when I did that uh, broadcast with Brian Stelter, I didn't say anything about being in contact with his family. But this was all Agent Olivia's plan to make sure that Benji and his wife were armed with as much information as possible about what lay ahead of them. Um, and the fact of the matter is, while there's a lot of aggro between um, uh, where you'll see it between like on social media, you'll see people stirring up this, oh, there's CNN versus Fox, blah, 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 or uh, MSNBC versus blah, blah, blah. I, I have great friends across all of the outlets. And one of the things that Benji was known for is he would ask brilliant questions at the State Department. Um, and he was a great teammate because often at the State Department bullpen, those are the reporters who have desks in the State Department. We would say get two questions and at um, we'd be allowed to send two people to a photo opportunity with the Secretary of State and a visiting dignitary. Um, or we'd know that we were only going to get two questions at a very short press conference. And we'd all pool together. Oh, really, this is the leading issue, but we've really got to get up on the record on this. And, and we work as a team um, across these ideological aisles. So um, I, I am so sorry. I understand that it is often for, well, sometimes it's ideology and belief and sometimes it is um, a decision made on you know who your audience is and how to get more eyeballs from that specific audience. And so you go with a specific uh, point of view, et cetera, et cetera, with your output. But I am sorry how it's created divisions among my tribe because um, we really need to support each other. There's uh, reporters have never been sometimes literally under fire more globally than ever before. And the last thing you need is ideology and disinformation um, contributing to having you tear each other down. Um, there's there's enough out there to do that. We should be what we've always tried to be in my profession, arbiters of truth. We live in an era where what is truth becomes a measure of where you stand and where you sit. 
Right. And that's such a great point because of with sort of a sort of recent reckoning with objectivity and how can journalists really be truly objective and, uh, of course, you know, the spread of disinformation, misinformation, and that's such a great point to end on. But I kind of see these sort of political and ideological sort of variables with news networks being sort of greater forces above that and maybe sort of uh, coming from further up and uh, and less, um, maybe less with like actual reporters from what I've observed and uh, from you as well. So that was a, that was such a, such a great answer and I didn't I didn't even know that you would pull that you pull questions together at a press briefing that's a it's awesome and uh that you'd uh also spoken with uh Benjamin Hall's wife that's a uh, and offered advice that's a uh, brilliant that's that's awesome because you uh you proved that you know you can not only survive but come back stronger than ever and return to the field of fighting you know the the good fight so thank you thank you so much Absolutely. And by the way, not so much offered advice, but just offered to be there to answer any questions she might have. A whole bunch of us did um, at the time. So that's just and and that was all uh, because we just wanted to be there to help the same way if you were um, injured uh, as a member of the U.S. military. There's a whole system there to support you from other spouses to uh, the people who come to your door to deliver that news and in the news media, you know, we're, we're not so structured. So um, if we can help, we really do try to help each other. Yeah, that's awesome. Caleb, did you have any more questions for me? Um, I don't think I do right now. So I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, coming on to our show i really appreciated it It really felt like i learned a lot because i'm not as much of a person who's too knowledgeable about politics since i'm a bio major i gotta be more knowledgeable about the sciences henry on the other hand as a someone who's pursuing uh journalism is someone who obviously knows more so it's really enlightening to hear what you had to say well i would just um encourage you to also if biology, medicine, science. I think you saw in the last administration um, how they've become lightning rods for politics. So uh, what's good and bad science um, as per what your political beliefs are has increasingly become, unfortunately, a huge topic. So um, it might it might help just to pay attention though uh i know it's it's a there was a time in my life when i said i don't want to have anything to do with politics and then i learned you know what politics is it's it's the thing that governs every aspect of my existence so i i try to find like um there are places like the politico playbook that you can get for free every day and just read a, a newsletter from one of those outlets and keep it brief um, and quote unquote, keep it like straight news. So I really appreciate you asking me questions because I think it's important for all of us to understand what's going on in DC and how it affects all of our lives. So thanks very much for having me. No problem. All right. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. It was a uh... It was such an honor not only to see hear you speak at a, you know, here at IU and talk to you afterwards and you know, talk about you know all these different issues and your insight, whether it be the Abraham Accords or the situation with uh, Afghanistan, uh, Ukraine. Uh, it's just uh, phenomenal. And I, uh, I have to admit, I just got this book uh, yesterday, but I uh, started reading it and. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm going to finish it in a week. So, Awesome. Well, thank you both. Really good to talk to you. And uh, good luck on your uh, new podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. And this episode will probably drop in a, in a few. Well, that was a great interview with Kimberly Dozier. What did you think, Henry? Yeah, I thought I'm, 
I mean, it was fantastic just to get to the opportunity to speak to someone like her, someone as brave as she is, someone with his such a vast um, experience covering these issues all around the world, firsthand experience, firsthand knowledge. Her father, of course, is a military background, and um, you know she's definitely someone that, as a journalist, you know you got to look up to. You know, one of the best in the field, and what a privilege it is to be able to speak with her. I totally agree. It was very fascinating to learn all about these different foreign experiences, uh, especially that story about the car bombing is so powerful and how she was able to bounce back for that. But also just to hear her opinion on the obvious current political issues that we're facing, such as uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as uh, the U.S.'s continuous involvement in the Middle East. Uh, I thought that was fascinating personally. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, that was the interview at IU. Catch us next time.